2: It's Monday, July 31st, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
2: You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more and to try it for free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only five bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at pb.com m-i-n-d-s. So as I'm sure a lot, if not all of our listeners, there have been things that you've been curious about in your life, right, Kishore?
1: Of course. I mean, my son just asked me the question why pretty much all day long. That counts, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, totally. So have you ever thought, though, about where this curiosity comes from and whether the kind of curiosity that you have for things like, you know, what is that bizarre meat on your lunch plate in the cafeteria versus you know are there more than one is there more than one universe out there whether those are the same thing i didn't think
1: there was more than one type of curiosity i i didn't (laughs) think that was a distinction that's that was there and i guess i've always thought that curiosity was sort of an innate human trait
2: Yeah, I mean, I always I I always imagine that curiosity is kind of like a higher cognitive function that subsumes a lot of different things. And in different situations, there will be different brain underpinnings of it. So, you know, being curious about what that mystery meat is on your plate versus, you know, trying to decide whether or not you believe in the existence of a higher power seem to me like two very fundamental, fundamentally different things. But there is a astrophysicist who's very famous and who's done a lot of writing about very interesting things, who has tried to tackle this problem and try to bring together all the different ways in which we are curious and show that there is some common underlying thing that makes us curious.
1: An astrophysicist? I mean, normally, I would think this is the territory of a... Neuroscientist or a psychologist? Why an astrophysicist?
2: Well, sometimes I think that major leaps in a particular field can be made by thinkers outside the field. And I don't know necessarily that this is one of them, uh, but I'm certainly welcoming Mario Livio to the discussion. So, Mario Livio is a well known astrophysicist and best selling author. Uh, he's appeared on The Daily Show and 60 Minutes and Nova. His book, The Golden Ratio, was highly acclaimed. He won a number of prizes for it. And his book most recent book now is why what makes us curious
1: oh now i'm now i'm curious what (laughs) makes us so curious and uh i'm actually most curious about the distinctions of different types of curiosity that he found out there
2: yeah so let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with mario livio this episode is brought to you by senpro from pitney bowes SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. You can print stamps from your computer, which saves you time and money. There's no special equipment necessary and no more waiting in the line at the post office. You can compare shipping rates and delivery times between the USPS and other major carriers. That ensures that you always get the best deal when you ship packages. You can also print paid shipping labels for USPS, UPS, and more. You can track your shipments from the same easy-to-use interface. And Pitney Bowes has negotiated special rates for SendPro users, saving start at just $0.03 per stamp. Businesses can even mail now and pay later with flexible payment options. Visit pb.com slash to learn more, and when you sign up, you'll get SendPro free for 90 days. You'll get a free 10-pound scale, and when your free trial is over, you'll get SendPro for only $5 a month and that special rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription. That's five bucks a month for SendPro versus 15.99 a month for stamps.com. That's three times the features at one third the price. But you can only get this deal for a limited time by going to pb.com slash minds. That's pb.com slash m-i-n-d-s to take advantage of this special offer. Mario Olivio, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: So I was interested in your book, of course, because I am a very curious person, and this is a podcast called Inquiring Minds, which is <laughs> essentially all about satiating curiosity. So, But what what brought you uh, to this particular topic?
0: So it, it really is very simply the fact that I'm a very curious person, because you see, I mean, it's not... In a way a natural thing for me to write about. I'm an astrophysicist, Uh, I'm not uh, neither a psychologist nor a neuroscientist, Uh, but I'm a very very curious person and at some point I became so curious about curiosity that I decided to devote a good number of years, you know, looking into all the research that has been done on this particular topic. Uh, talking to scientists, visiting labs, you know, and things like that. So, um, yeah, so that's the reason.
2: And, you know, we often find, uh, at least in the last 100 years, that people outside of a particular field can have a paradigm shifting impact. Uh, that that while you're in a in a field, I know, my field is psychology, I did my you know, degree in neuroscience. And so we, we get caught up in our own jargon, we get caught up in our own way of carving out the mind. And so it's always interesting for me to talk to someone who has done a a, a sort of deep uh, research into a psychological topic, but comes at it with a different framework, and and that's to me what this book, um, you know, why what makes us curious really does. Uh,
0: well, I'm very happy to hear you say that. Clearly, I mean, um, I, I would not, you know, uh, go so far as as be so unmodest to say that you know I've I've brought about a paradigm shift. Uh, but what I did find, you know, is that when you actually read the literature in psychology and in neuroscience on the study of uh, curiosity in particular, uh, then you do see, you know, how people are very, very interested in very specific, focused, uh, relatively limited questions. And uh, you don't see very many uh, studies that you know take a more sort of comprehensive look at the whole topic. In fact, I, I was a bit surprised when talking to many of the researchers in the field uh, how uh, many of them did not know much of the literature that was outside their you know main interests. Um, but that is probably true for any research field. Well, I
2: mean, it's certainly getting more and more true for neuroscience as the field is rapidly expanding. It's just impossible to keep on track of everything. It's impossible to keep on track of everything in your subs topic. Uh, So I think we do get stuck in our own little bubbles, but I want to sort of get to what it is that you use as your definition of curiosity, because as a layperson, you know, I can think of curiosity as a feeling that I get, that I, you know, I can think of it as an intellectual state, uh, and I can think of it as a drive or a motivation, you know, to gather information. So, you know, what? how is it that you conceptualize it?
0: So one of the things I described is that uh, even though we use the word curiosity for many things, um, it, it turns out that actually there are, rather different kinds or or flavors, if you like, of curiosity. And in fact, maybe had we known this and this much about it from the start, we might have even used different words rather than curiosity for all of these things. So I want to give you an example. And I'm going to use terminology that was originally introduced by this psychologist, Daniel Berline, which many in the field use. And it's by no means a unique type for terminology. I mean, this is not mathematics, um, it, but but it it is helpful to work in this way because then we know what we're talking about. So, in particular, two types of curiosity that uh, I, I, I discuss are what he called perceptual curiosity which is the curiosity that is stimulated by surprising things or uh, things that puzzle us or things that look ambiguous enough. Um, That's one type of of curiosity. And that is uh, perceived as a state of mind uh, that is uh, aversive. It is unpleasant. It is a bit like an itch that needs to be scratched. Um, So so that's one type of of curiosity and if you like, you could take it as a definition of curiosity, but it would only define this type. Then there is a a curiosity he called epistemic curiosity, which really represents our love of knowledge, if you like. You know, that thing that we want to understand why, you know, the title of of the book, why. Uh, When we want to understand why or how, that's epistemic curiosity. And, and that is perceived actually as a pleasurable state it's it's one that is associated with um, us assigning certain value to knowledge and therefore we have an anticipation of reward um, so so that's a different type and so depending on which one you're talking about then you know you might give different definitions um, just to name I mean the two others that main kinds that he discusses, I mean, there is specific curiosity, which is the very simple thing where you miss a very particular piece of information. I mean, uh, what was the name of the actor in last uh, week's film? You know, you you just don't remember that. That's specific curiosity. And then opposite that, there is diversive curiosity, which is, you know, when you see youngsters constantly searching for... uh, Text messages on their phone or things of that nature. So, so uh, depending on which one you talk about, you may give it a somewhat different definition.
2: So it's interesting to me uh, that you sort of drill down into curiosity as, and I and I assume that. Um, partly because of the people that you profiled, Leonardo da Vinci, Noam Chomsky, Brian May, the guitarist from Queen, uh, that there is a, an overlap between people who are very curious and some creativity. And, and you know, now as we are beginning a you know, time, I think, where the, the research into creativity is expanding, taking creativity apart is actually an important part of figuring out how it works. But on the other hand, as you've just described it, you're really talking about many different aspects of cognition that cognitive scientists have been studying in isolation for a long time. So how do you balance this kind of, you know, the the reductionist approach, but also the fact that are you covering too much uh, by just calling it curiosity?
0: One very, very interesting thing that I found was that when you look at the neuroscience of curiosity... Uh, And we can do that now. I mean, you know, you take people, you stick them into functional MRI machines, and uh, you try to make them curious in various ways, which, by the way, in itself is not an easy task because you cannot order somebody, be curious now. So uh, that's one part of it. The second part is that uh, experiments using functional MRI are both tedious and they are expensive. Uh, you know, anybody who who lied in inside one such machine uh, knows that it is not a particularly pleasant feeling. So, if you look at the studies that exist in 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 that kind of field. Uh, you know, you would see studies that involve 19 subjects or things like this. You don't see see studies where somebody has taken 30,000 people and and stuck them into functional MRIs.
2: Not yet, but I'm sure Google's working on it.
0: Uh, Maybe, but, (laughs) you you know, it's really not easy. These are large machines. They cost a lot of money. Uh, People don't like to lie there for a long time, you know, and things like this. But, okay, but to come back to the point that... When you do that, um, they did discover that, for example, perceptual curiosity, that curiosity when you're surprised or if you see something ambiguous, and epistemic curiosity, that's the love of knowledge and when you want to know something, actually activate different parts of your brain. So. They truly are different in some sense. I mean, um, uh, you, and, and 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 that's why I said, you know, that maybe we would not have even called both of them curiosity had we known this in advance. Um, so that's part of w- what I've done. But uh, I
2: guess that's what I'm what I'm kind of saying, because you, know, you know, as psychologists, we certainly would not consider those two brain states. The same, you know, we would call the perceptual curiosity perceptual, which is a very different sort of low level, almost, you know, kind of uh, with a, well, yeah, with a completely different. It doesn't surprise me, is what I'm trying to say, that they have different brain underpinnings because they seem to me to be very different brain states.
0: Right, and yet we use the the word curiosity for both. Right. Um, so so it's a little bit confusing, and then therefore, if if you ask me how do you define curiosity, well, which curiosity are you talking about? <laughs>
2: Right. So let's actually talk a little bit about epistemic curiosity, because for me, and, and I think probably for most of our listeners of Inquiring Minds, that's the most interesting. You know, we are, we are, we do have a thirst for knowledge. And I, I liked how you referenced um, Irv Biederman uh, down at USC. He's at USC still, right? I think so.
0: <laughs> he was, at least when he wrote that paper.
2: Yeah, about that we are infovores, that in fact, we have a, that it is rewarding for us to get information from the world um so you know it's this it's this notion that that it's not just because we need it to survive it actually is intrinsically pleasurable
0: that's right uh, look many of the things we do as, as, as when being epistemically curious uh, are clearly not for immediately f- for survive i mean look at all basic scientific research i mean all basic scientific research or most of it Eventually becomes applicable as well. I mean, uh, there is a saying which I like, you know, that there is applied research and not yet applied research. Um, so it's true that basic research eventually may become applicable, but it is also true that when it is done as basic scientific research, it's still not applicable and certainly not for survival. I, I, when people started learning uh, you know, about quantum mechanics and what this, it, it was not necessary for survival. Even when Michael Faraday did his first experiments in electromagnetism, it was not necessary for survival. In fact, there is this story that somebody from the government came and asked him, what was this good for? And he said, I'll tell honestly, I don't know what it's good for, but I'm pretty sure that very soon you will be able to collect taxes on this. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, So clearly, it is the case that we are more curious epistemically about things that are not directly related to our survival. But we somehow feel that understanding cause and effect in the long run, is good for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, and you're an astrophysicist. I mean, it doesn't get much more esoteric.
0: Abstract than that. <laughs> That's right.
2: Yeah. So it has writing this book sort of helped you figure out why it was that you chose your particular scientific field?
0: No, well, I I don't think that writing the book helped me do that. In fact, I think it's in some sense the other way around. I mean, I, I became an astrophysicist because I was very curious about the cosmos and I wrote the book because I realized I was so curious that I wanted to understand it.
2: So we're also living in an era, though, where there's a huge political divide, it seems, between people who seem to be epistemically curious and people who uh, become entrenched in certain ideas and don't want to gain more knowledge. Um, so how do, you, how do you make sense of that?
0: Uh, unfortunately, I don't make sense of it. I regard this as very, very dangerous. And uh, look, we have seen throughout history... Um, And and I discuss some of that in the book, you know, entire periods where, uh, you know, be it some oppressive rulers or some regimes or some ideologies, um, tried to build build walls around certain types of knowledge. Uh, Of course, the Middle Ages are the best known such long period where, you know, church orthodoxy, uh, you know, had these has it, its own dogmas and, you know, they wanted people to actually adhere to those dogmas. And so um, basically the prevailing uh, statement was that we know everything that is worth knowing and uh, there is no need to inquire any further. Uh, but we know what that led to. And, and you know, I also describe other periods of suppression of curiosity. I mean, all the book burning episodes, uh, the things that the Nazis did with degenerate art, uh, the Talibans. Uh, you know what they did with uh, both the works of art. You know, like dynamiting the Buddhas of Bamiyan and the attack on Malala Yousafzai uh, because she, you know, wanted education for young girls uh, and and all that. Um, but but and and way to to now to the what you describe now. I mean, you know, when you. Um, say that endowment for the arts is unimportant or that uh, national public radio is unimportant or that NIH research is not so important. Uh, This is suppressing curiosity. So uh, I think this is an extremely dangerous trend. And um, I coined this phrase, which I, I must say I'm very proud of. I'm not saying I'm Completely original because I discovered that other people used very similar phrases in other places, but I coined it independently. Which is curiosity is the best remedy for fear, um, because we are very often fearful of things that we don't know much about or we don't understand, things that are strange to us, and by being curious about them and learning about them, we can actually overcome this fear. So. Um, yeah, I think that's what we should do.
2: So interestingly enough, that really uh, jives well with a lot of work on how to uh, attenuate even implicit bias that we have, say, against uh, another race, uh, that if you can interact with someone from that race or you know, think about a positive role model, that is, have a richer depiction, a richer schema of what a person from that race would be like. You don't show implicit bias as much and and so it seems to me like tapping into making people more curious and this I in this you know wonderful idea of yours of you know if, if we have this problem where people have a great fear, I mean maybe that's why we have so many people denying climate change it's scary to think about what we're up against in the next few decades. So what does the science say in terms of the conditions under which a person is fearful of a topic like that versus curious about a topic like that?
0: Well, um... Uh, here is the thing. I mean, I think originally there is a combination of fear and curiosity, but uh, and, and, and I, I, I describe in the book a certain uh, passage where Leonardo uh, da Vinci has this thing where he stands at the entrance of this very dark cave, and he has this combination of curiosity, wanting to know what 's inside, but on the other hand, fear of what 's inside, and you know he tries to see from the outside a little bit and doesn 't succeed. Very well. So that's the situation you are initially at. But then what I'm advocating is you know actually to try to uh, enhance the curiosity side of things. I mean, look, I mean you, you mentioned racial biases, but look you know, even history in the history of anti-Semitism, for example, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, I mean what happened was you had a certain group of people, in this case you know Jews, were having different customs, different way of life, uh, different books they were reading and things like that. And, and that generated some form of fear. Uh, so instead of, you know, actually getting to know these people better uh, and know them individually, I mean, uh, a number of societies, uh, you know, turned this fear into hatred and, and we know what that led to. So uh, this is what you know, I think we should do. We always use curiosity to overcome fear. And so, you know, in many ways,
2: the kind of scientific work that you can do on curiosity has a major problem, which is that it's conducted in undergraduate research institutions where you have two potential confounds. One, your subjects are young, uh, which generally means they're more open to new experiences. As we get older, we tend to, in general, become more rigid. Uh, And two, they're primarily people who have already chosen intellectual pursuits. So it seems like they would be more, you know, whether it's genetic or, you know, some other aspect of um, the relationship between genes and and how they were raised and, and, and how it manifests in their personality, they're more, again, more open to to these ideas. But what we really need to figure out is that people who are not at all curious, and I'm not saying that, you know, they are uneducated, um, but rather that, you know, that that understanding whether this is something that can be taught or is is somewhere along the line in our children are we telling them not to be curious is it is it a fundamental difference in terms of the the fact that there's internet and you can waste your time on social media rather than doing you know the kind of deeper uh, understanding of a particular topic that generates more curiosity. What do you think is going on?
0: So, so you asked many questions I did. I'm here. very sorry. You asked was, very many questions. Terrible. So le- let me try to take a few, uh, one by one, if I will remember all of them together. <laughs> sure. so, so one is that you're absolutely right that for a long while, all experiments were basically done on freshmen or sophomore students. Uh, in fact, one could almost argue that all the results in psychology apply only to that kind of demographic. But this is changing. And in particular, it's changing in a way that addresses some of what you're talking about. And that is that there are more and more experiments done on very, very young children. Um, So people like Elizabeth Spelke at Harvard and Laura Schultz at MIT, and people like that are doing experiments with very young children. And one of the things they are finding is that at a very, very early age, um, experiments show that children are already very interested in things such as cause and effect. Uh, they have this already notion that every effect is somehow related to a cause in, in an unbroken chain of events, and they try to understand. And I, I cite some interesting experiments where which show how you know, kids really have interest in cause and effect. And when they see their expectations violated, then they are more curious about this. So one thing to do in that sense is, of course, to generate curiosity in very, very young children. Now, you also address the fact that There is this feeling that, yeah, young children are very curious and they ask why all the time. And by the way, they ask why because they want to understand this cause and effect thing. And that that later somehow disappears, maybe through our education system or or other things. And it turns out that's also not entirely true. I mean, uh, what the research shows is that Things like diversive curiosity, you know, you know, this wanting to look at many things at the same time and trying novel things, taking risk for novel things, that tends to decline somewhat with age and the ability to be surprised. But epistemic curiosity actually stays fairly constant with age. So the idea would be to make the children curious and actually continue somehow to, to nurture their uh, epistemic curiosity and, in fact, you know, also their perceptual curiosity if one can. So, so that's the other uh, component of it. Um, now, how do you do that? Uh, so that, that's, of course, another question. And I don't claim to have all the answers to that, but but I have some ideas. So one idea, which I think is extremely important, which came from my conversation with Lord Martin Rees, who's a famous cosmologist, is that um, to follow the curiosity of the children and not start with what you think is interesting for them to be You know, exploring. So, for example, very young children, at least in the US, uh, are typically very interested in dinosaurs. And many of them are also interested in outer space. So, start with those topics. Don't start science with you think, oh, all children should know how a pendulum works, you know, maybe they don't care about pendulum, you know, Uh, but they care about dinosaurs. And there is a lot of science and a lot of inquisitiveness that you can teach them through looking at dinosaurs and then start, so start with something they are interested in and then try to connect that in ways that they understand very well to other topics that you think may be important instead of starting with, you know, oh, I think uh, motion on inclined planes is the thing they should understand, which, you know, bores them to, to death.
2: Yeah, so uh, in the the past on the show, we've had Alison Gopnik, who wrote a book about how scientists, uh, babies are scientists, they're born scientists. Um, And and it turns out that a lot of preschool education now is on this model where, you know, certainly my son's preschool, you know, every week, that's a new theme, and it's, you know, very child led. But you're right, that somehow, when we get into elementary school, and we have the core curriculum, that goes away, because we have to learn, you know, these kinds of basic scientific concepts. So, you know, I, I think, you know, your call for a kind of you know people should take it up as that kind of revolution of scientific education sort of that is led by curiosity and one of the other things that you talk about in your book though is that curiosity kind of follows this inverted U-shaped curve where you know the more well I'll let you explain it
0: yeah so if you look at curiosity as a function either of uncertainty or its complement knowledge then you find an inverted U curve in 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 the following sense when you know about something very, very little, you're not particularly curious about it because you don't know what to be curious about, really. When you know a lot about a topic, you're also not very curious about it because you feel that you know most of the stuff and you know what remains is not that important. When you're really curious is when you know something about this, but you actually feel that there is still more to be known, you know, there is still a gap between your uh, the state you are in and your desired state, so to speak. Uh, that's when you are really uh, getting curious. So, the one of the ways to to incite curiosity or or to encourage it is is to generate this gap, you know, to sort of give a little bit of information which you know, will whet your appetite for more curiosity, uh, rather than, you know, don't give the full answer. Don't give too, don't give so little that, you know, it's still uninteresting.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, hearing you talk about that and, and you know, reading about it in your book too, made me wonder whether the people who are already tapping into this way of accessing curiosity might be a sort of better knowledge base to, to learn from. And these are storytellers, right? People who write Great stories are essentially harnessing our curiosity.
0: That's right, and and it's not an accident, by the way, that I start the book with this very short story by by this American writer Kate Chopin, who uh, you know wrote this story a story of an hour. I mean, she wrote many short stories and a couple of novels, uh, but. Uh, a story of an hour to me was was an incredible short story. It's, you know, it's all it was all printed on less than one page in Vogue originally. This is how short this story is. But, you know, it starts with this one startling sentence, you know, knowing that Mrs. Mallard was afflicted with heart trouble, uh, great care was taken, uh, you know, to break to her as gently as possible the news about her husband's death. You know, you read the story like this, you can hardly start a short story with a better sentence than this. Immediately, you know, hear about death. You hear about that she's afflicted with heart. You already are interested in this person. And uh, so uh, this is a special gift of being able to generate a form of intellectual cliffhangers with almost every sentence so great storytellers have that and and so
2: in a sense that though there there's a a, a... Notion that the demise of uh, education and and people's ability to sort of learn information comes from the fact that there are so many great stories, so many great ways of being entertained now uh, that you know you could binge watch so many shows that could keep you interested. That why should you then pick up a textbook or you know learn something different? And so I, I wanted to sort of touch upon this kind of difference that you make in your book, which is that there is a curiosity that is less satisfying ultimately, but really draws in our attention. And we call it gossip. (laughs) Yes. Which is different from the kind of epistemological curiosity that you're talking about. So what is gossip and why is it so powerful?
0: So, uh, you know, gossip at the end of the day has to do typically with human lives. And human lives can be very interesting. And uh, unlike what some people may think, You can turn even gossip into something like a scientific experiment. And I give uh, an example of another type of scientific experiment, which my youngest daughter did once, you know, trying to discover uh, uh, the experiment was uh, which lipstick can sustain the largest number of kisses. Now this sounds like a very silly type of experiment but actually turned out to be a real scientific experiment. Now, what also it turns out that my daughter, who was in middle school at the time, was not interested in lipsticks at all. She just happened to see on TV that a certain lipstick company was advertising that their lipstick can sustain the most kisses, and she was interested to know whether that Advertising was correct or not? She was interested in truth in advertising, and we ended up, you know, studying that as a science experiment for for school, and uh, by using actually ingenious methods to to to, to uh, measure this. And this is the type of thing that I'm talking about. You can turn something like this, which sounds like a gossipy type question, into an actually intellectually challenging scientific experiment. And in the same way, you know, somebody may be interested in the love life of this or that prince or or something like that and so on. Well, you know what? If you think about this, you can probably generate some sort of a topic of in sociology or something like this that will be really interesting out of that thing. Now, We're interested in gossip for a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, we're interested in people that are different from us in certain ways. You know, if we're very poor, we're interested in how the rich and famous live. all kinds of things of that nature. And I think that there is nothing wrong with that as long as we manage to harness even that into, you know, stimulating curiosity.
2: So you've just written a very rich tome about curiosity, uh, which I, w- I will tell my listeners that it is very well annotated. And there's, you know, so much information in, uh, in what is a relatively short book, but, um, you know, still lots of references then to continue your curiosity. Is there anything that you are left with that still makes you curious about this topic?
0: Oh, a lot. I mean, you know, we we haven't even, we're just beginning to understand the topic of curiosity. I mean, this fact that we now understand that curiosity is a family of mechanisms and not just one thing, you know, is in itself very uh, powerful, uh, you know, and you may say, Oh, well, you know, uh, we came out unsatisfied because, uh, uh, you you know, you only tell us it's a family of mechanisms, so we don't know exactly. What, well, but that's how it is. It is a family of mechanisms. I cannot change that. That's what it turns out to be. So we need to know more about those and how they are connected. I mean, some of the things I discussed, for example, are, uh, and, and lots of experiments on that, on how... Um, curiosity is uh, related to the reward mechanism, how uh, curiosity can enhance memory, even incidental memory, you know, things that we don't intend to remember. Uh, Somehow we remember better when we're in a state of curiosity. There are experiments that show, you know, you you put people in a state of curiosity and you just flash some random faces uh, during the experiment for them, uh, and it turns out they remember those faces also better, even though they had nothing to do with the experiment itself. So these are amazing things. There are the issues that uh, we are appear to be the only species that is able to ask why. Animals are curious, but they are not interested in unseen causes. And how do we know that? How do we know that chimpanzees are not interested in synchros because there are very, very specific experiments which compare four-year-olds to chimpanzees, and, you know, whereas the four-year-olds are, are discovered that, you know, they try to understand what's going on, and they both visually and with their hands, none of the chimpanzees does that. I mean, they just keep trying, trying, doing something that doesn't work, and they're not interested in the rest of it. Um, and we also found out which areas of the brain are Stimulated when 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 this happens. So there are many many questions that remain on the issue of curiosity.
2: All right. Well, I want to let our listeners know that uh, Mario Olivio's book, "Why What Makes Us Curious," is available at booksellers everywhere. Thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds.
0: Thank you so much for having. Me.
2: So one of the things that Mario and I didn't get a chance to discuss, but which he actually talks about at length in his book, is that curiosity isn't always perceived as such a good thing. I mean, we have, you know, phrases like curiosity killed the cat as a warning that curiosity might actually be dangerous.
1: I mean, perceived that way by individuals or by by whole organizations of people?
2: Well, it seems that historically, there have been times in which a kind of ruling class has decided that knowledge is not a good thing for the mass people to have. And so they've discouraged curiosity. And, uh, you know, as Livio points out, this is even true in fairy tales, which are often ways in which cultures pass on uh, moral ideas and rules and regulations and so forth. So like Hansel and Gretel, for example, are great examples of curious kids who went and got into a lot of trouble for it.
1: Yeah. So we've seen a lot of governments that try to quell the acquisition of certain types of knowledge and definitely want to maintain a certain level of education amongst a population. But is that blunting curiosity or is it blunting knowledge? Are those two different things?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's still, I mean, so so the way that Mario Livio sort of paints it is that curiosity leads to knowledge, right? I mean, if you if you don't have curiosity, it's very hard to learn something. I think that's one of the major problems with the way a lot of teaching has happened uh, in the last few decades. That seems to be changing. A lot of universities are creating curricula that are all about particular topics of interest rather than trying to drum in a bunch of facts. Um, But and you know, that's true now trickling down into high school and middle school and even kindergarten. And of course, preschools are all about exploration. So I think that people are in Understanding that triggering curiosity is a way in which, you know, you can really enhance learning in individuals. Um, and that when things are boring or taught in a boring way, which doesn't lead to any kind of curiosity, doesn't lead to an active participation in learning, that it's really ineffective. I think we
1: also have the spin that all curiosity leads to something remarkable and great and fun. And I don't think that's how it has existed in my personal experience? Has it been that way for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly, sometimes curiosity has kept me up at night. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. not super healthy. And interestingly enough, I'm actually working now on a project. It's an an opera that uh, my opera company is commissioning that's being written uh, for me, which is really, really exciting. It's going to go up in about a year from now. And uh, it's a feminist retelling of a fairy tale, The Bluebeard Castle Story, which if you don't know the fairy tale, you know, it kind of goes, there's a, a big, rich, dark and handsome, you know, baron who uh, has a naive bride that he brings to his castle, and he tells her, you know, you can look into any room except that one. And it's essentially a, a, a metaphor for our psyche in a, in a relationship. So the question is, should you always keep something secret from your partner? In this feminist retelling uh, based on the novel in the front bit, in, written in the 70s by Angela Carter, of course, the, the women end up triumphing. But of course, in the original fairy tale, the one room that is not is forbidden is where he keeps all his dead wives right (laughs) so (laughs) how
1: morbid is that
2: (laughs) yeah so that's the idea that if you open that one room you're going to not only kill the relationship but also you know somehow there's a part of you that's going to die so it's interesting this 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 notion that maybe not all curiosity is good. And if and if you think about, you know, we talked a little bit um, with Mario about gossip and how that can lead to nefarious uh, ends, that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be we, sh- we should sort of allow our curiosity to sort of get us closer to the kind of knowledge that might be noble. I don't even know how you define that, but try to avoid the kind of curiosity that can get us into trouble with our relationships.
1: At the beginning of the show, you mentioned that you welcome more thinkers from other fields beyond neuroscience and psychology joining this conversation. After you talk to Mario, do you feel even more emboldened that more need to get involved in order to push this field forward.
2: Yeah, look, I'm the first person to balk when you have someone who has no expertise in a field trying to, you know, make statements and and conclusions and have theories about a field for which, you know, they, they really don't have any experience. Um, but in terms of curiosity, I would think an astrophysicist actually does have quite a bit of experience living it. Uh, and he was very respectful of the science. And he certainly, you know, instead of saying like, hey, I've got this great idea that no science, no neuroscientists or psychologists have thought about, he was pulling together disparate uh, studies from different neuroscientists and psychologists into a larger framework, which to me is actually the best way of doing this kind of cross-disciplinary work. Um, Because of course, within each field, those psychologists and neuroscientists might not be as familiar uh, with sort of people who are working still in neuroscience and psychology, but in a slightly different field, you know, we all get stuck in our own niches. So having someone use their curiosity uh, to go and pull together uh, studies that are related, but aren't obviously related, I think is a really great way of, you know, getting close to a paradigm shift. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds, and we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel and Newly Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, whatever it is that you are curious about to contact at inquiring.show.
1: Inquiring Minds is produced by the always curious Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rhian Sheehan.
2: And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Keach. See you next week.
2: This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more and to try it for free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only five bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at pb.com m-i-n-d-s. Pulling up
1: to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me